Praise the Lord for that. Well, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20 tonight. Revelation chapter 20. For those of you who haven't been with us, we have been working through the glorious earthly return of Jesus and the setting up of His kingdom as it has been revealed and being revealed in Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. Revelation 19 ends with the climax of the day of the Lord, as it's called in the Old Testament. Or as you probably are familiar with it, the battle of Armageddon, Har Megiddo, in the, the Jezreel Valley, where, where the great army will be gathered and the Lord will destroy them. With the sword of His mouth, He'll speak and they will, they will die. And all of that's brought about by the second coming of Christ... In Revelation 19, verse 11, John sees heaven opened and he sees a, great, a white horse and a rider on that white horse. And it's not an angel, it's none other than the, the Lord him, Himself. By the end of Revelation 19, two of the three members of the unholy trinity, the Antichrist and the false prophet, are thrown into the eternal lake of fire, never to escape again. They, they never get out after... Revelation 19. And the chapter ends with the Lord having executed judgment on the earth. Bodies are strewn everywhere and there is a, there's a great bird feast that's, that's there on the flesh of, of men. Revelation 20 then introduces the millennial kingdom of Jesus. And we've looked at the many details that, that point to the the literal earthly reign of, of Christ, where Jesus shall sit upon the throne of, of David. We saw that, there's, that there are many markers there. There's a clear chronology from Revelation 19, 20, and 21. There's the seven statements about the duration of the kingdom. It's, it's a literal thousand years, a millennia. The covenants of God, how they all point to God still promises things to Israel that are yet fulfilled, and so those will be fulfilled in the kingdom. And yet, when you come to Revelation 20, John doesn't spend a lot of details, a lot of time on the details of the kingdom. He only states its fact and its duration. And that's because John's purpose is to tell us about the things that are, that are coming. And, and the Old Testament has done a sufficient job of telling us all about how the kingdom is is, is going to be fulfilled and what it's going to look like. Revelation 20 is really like a summary. It's like the skeleton. And the rest of the Bible fills out the, the muscles. And the Bible is abundantly clear about those, those details, the character of the kingdom. If you want to, want to read about the character of the, of the kingdom of, of Christ, it's described in Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 11. It's described in, in many places. But just look at at what you and I have to, to look forward to. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 through 4. This is describing the character of the kingdom during Christ's reign. Now it will come about, uh, come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and the, the nations will, will stream to it. And many people will, will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of, of Jacob, 
to the house of the God of Jacob, that, that He may teach us concerning His ways and that we may, we may walk His paths. For the law of the Lord will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many people. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, probably one of the familiar passages. And their spears into pruning hooks. There will be peace. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And there won't be any more war. That's Isaiah chapter 2. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. Another familiar passage talking about the character of the kingdom. What will the kingdom be like? The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together. It was that way at one point in Eden. There wasn't the... The, the dinosaurs, the tyrannosaurs ripping the flesh off of Adam. They, they, were, they were herbivores. And Adam named them all. And here in, in the kingdom, it will return to, to an Eden-like like scenario. A little boy will lead them and the, the cow and the bear will, will graze together. And the young will lie down, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the the viper's den, and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. The character of the kingdom. Won't that be a time? The capital of the kingdom will be in Jerusalem, the Bible tells us, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. There will be no war in it, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. Righteousness will reign. We just read that in Isaiah chapter 11. And this Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, is really the summary verse of the, of the kingdom. They will not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the, the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the the sea, the earth will be full of the Lord, will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 72 describes the results that will come in the kingdom. Righteousness, abundant peace, flourishing, the knowledge of the Lord will be everywhere. And there will be, there will be no devil. Christ will reign with absolute power over the whole earth. And He'll reign with a, with a rod of iron, as the Bible says. And in the kingdom... What God intended for Eden, for Eden, but Adam failed to do, will be accomplished by the, by the last Adam. And, and in that time, God will bring back wayward Israel. Israel will be rejoined to God and be transformed from an unfaithful wife into one who loves and obeys her, her husband. And the Gentiles will share in the blessings of peace, joy, and prosperity and all that for a thousand years. And if you want to read about all those details, you go... You go to the, to the Old Testament. Now, we've walked through it in Revelation 20, and it reveals two major events. And we saw Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, Satan is bound. That's the first thing that happens, verse 1 through 3. And then in verse 4 through 6 of Revelation 20, there's the kingdom reign and the reign of the king with his saints. Well, tonight we're going to look at what happens after, immediately following the earthly kingdom, 
of Jesus. They're just four verses, verses 7 through 10, but it's packed with promises. So let's read Revelation 20, and we'll read verses 1 through 10, just to remind us where we're at. And we're only going to cover verses 7 through 10 tonight. Revelation 20. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. We're going to see that tonight. Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony, the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. And over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they came upon the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they were tormented day and night, forever and ever. Just four verses, verses 7 through 10. And I would title this, The Last Rebellion. It is the last rebellion that we see in the Bible. And there are three parts to this rebellion that John sees and We'll look at these three parts tonight. He describes the... Well, boy, we're quick here, aren't we? Man. Ah, there we go. The emancipation of the dragon. We see that in verse 7 and 8. There's the engulfing of the dragon's army in verse 9. And then there's the eternal end of the devil in verse... Verse 7. Look, if you would, at verse 7, and we will see the emancipation of the dragon. And we're already to, we've already been told who that is. It's, it's Satan. And John uses at least three uh, markers to tell us, to make sure we know it's the, it's the dragon. Verse 7 says, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of of the earth. Now I want you to notice that the first thing this text tells us is a number of things. It tells us when this is going to happen. It's literally when the thousand years has expired, that's in verse 7. It tells us where Satan has been. He's released from his prison, Greek for the place where captives are kept, and we've already been told that's the abyss. 
what he will do whenever he is released. He'll deceive the nations all over the earth. And then what they will do whenever they're deceived. They're going to gather for, for war. Very clear in verse 7 and verse, verse 8. John skips over the, the happenings of the kingdom and comes directly to the end because that's the next significant moment in, in God's clock. You remember, John has a purpose. Just like we talked about Mark this morning, his purpose was not to include all of the details of the, of the Gentile trial. He had the purpose to show that Jesus was, was mocked. He was rejected. He was, he was, the gospel was foolish to them. John also has a purpose. His purpose is not to tell us every single thing about the kingdom because John is very aware of the Old Testament. John's purpose is to tell us the things that will come after, the things that will be. And the next thing that comes on God's time clock is this last battle and the release of, of, of Satan. And that comes directly at the end of the kingdom. And John says in verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, he says at the, the teleo, the word for expiration, when the thousand years has expired, at the end, Satan is released from prison. As I said, that's already been identified as the abyss, the abyssos. And he immediately, the Bible says, begins to return to his work. And what's his work? It's to deceive. That's, that's what he's unable to do whenever he's bound. He's bound and he's no longer able to deceive the nations for the thousand years. The minute that he is released... Then he goes back to he goes back to deceiving. Look, if you would, at verse eight, and will come out and deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth. I know what does that mean? The four corners of the earth. It just means all over the earth. Satan's deception is not going to be localized. Today we we look at the earth and, and we talk about places where the gospel has never been heard. We send people to the to the unreached places. We talk about in missions there are parts of the of the planet where there's only one percent believers and how the United States has the gospel all over the place. Well here the Bible talks about Satan's deception is also going to be all over the earth. My grandfather used to say his children were scattered to the four winds. Have you ever heard that statement before? He simply means they moved all over. They're in West Virginia and North Carolina and, and, and Florida. It means the same thing. The four corners of the earth. Now, one of the first questions everybody asks, and I ask as well whenever I come to this passage that just states, after the thousand years, Satan will be released. The first question that I ask is, why, right? Don't you ask that question? Why? You got him locked up. Why let him out? And the second question that people typically ask, me included, is how? Why let him out? And how will he deceive people after the... A thousand years of Jesus reigning on the, on the earth. After the tribulation period, whenever there has been a time of peace and prosperity. Well, well quite frankly, the answer, the answer is, is really pretty simple. Depravity is not removed during the kingdom. Do you understand what I mean by that? 
those who follow Satan do so because they're willingly deceived. And, and there are people that are born during the, the thousand-year kingdom, which is going to take place on the earth. And those Satan deceives are the descendants of the tribulation saints that, that enter the, the kingdom. You remember there are two types of people that enter into the earthly kingdom. This is a literal kingdom. Jesus is literally going to be in Jerusalem. He will be there ruling and, and reigning. All of the world will look to Jerusalem again, and Israel will have a prominent place, and the resurrected saints will rule and reign with Christ on the earth. And there are two types of people that enter that kingdom. After the, the battle of Armageddon, after the tribulation period, they're those who, first of all, have been resurrected they're the ones that are part of the first resurrection that we, that we just read. Verse 4 tells us you want to be part of the first resurrection. Those who are part of the first resurrection, the second death has no power over them. We'll see the second death whenever we, we get to the great white throne judgment. And then there are those who are alive and remain on the earth. Those who survived the tribulation. Those who have believed on, on Jesus. Those are the two types of people that enter into the kingdom. The resurrected saints will obviously be perfected, right? They'll have new bodies to accompany their, their, new, their new nature. They're going to rule and reign with, with Christ. The other group, which is the tribulation saints and the Jews, who look upon the one whom they pierced and believe and enter into the kingdom, they're still going to be in their earthly bodies. They won't be resurrected. They'll be just like you and I are are today. There'll be no different than, than you and I are physically. There'll be no different than you and I are as saved people in the fact that we have the, the Spirit of God and we, we've been regenerated. We've been born again. They'll be born again and they'll, they'll enter the, the kingdom and they won't be perfected. And just like you battle the flesh, they'll battle the flesh. Now, they'll have it a little bit better than we will. It's been said, rightfully so, you, you want to you wanna trust Christ now because whenever the rapture comes and tribulation comes on the earth, it, it's, if you follow Christ, it's going to be very hard. There's going to be lots of deception, lots of difficulty. And if you think that, that you know, you're just going to wake up one day whenever all the saints are gone and just decide to believe, that's not the way that it's going to be. It's going to be hard to believe during the... The tribulation period. And during the kingdom, the saints that enter the kingdom will have it better than we have it today. Two of the three things that we battle will be removed in the kingdom. What do we battle against? The world, the flesh, and the what? The devil. The world and the devil will be removed, but they'll still have their flesh. The devil's going to be bound for a thousand years. He'll be bound during the kingdom. And the world is his cosmos, his system. And the, the satanic system's not going to be operating in the kingdom. It's, it's going to be the, the system of King Jesus, righteousness and peace and, and justice. And it'll be wonderful, but they'll still have their flesh to deal with. And they'll still be in their fallen, fallen state. And you should remember one other very important thing. While death will be suspended or delayed, depending on which position you take during the millennia, birth won't be. In fact, because of the, the Eden-like conditions, there's going to be an increase in population. If you haven't paid attention and you read the Bible, God is pro-baby. Do you know that? <laughs> he, 
He commands His original creation to be fruitful and multiply and have 1.2 children to live the American dream. Is that what it says? It says to fill the earth. If God has opened the womb and, and, and not given you the gift of singleness, then that's a wonderful blessing. He's blessed you to have children. That's one of the reasons that Satan attacks children and hates them and, and tries to kill them through all manners of, of evil today. Well, in the kingdom, God will bring to pass what he desired in the original creation in the garden. And the earth is going to be full, teeming with people that will bear his image. And people are going to live a long time. They're going to live long lives similar to the way they did prior to the flood. And there are going to be many, many children that are born. And they're going to be born in a fallen state. They're going to be born made after Adam because their parents are going to still have a, a sin nature. And some of them will believe and some of them will not believe. And that's who Satan is going to target for his deception. The millions, millions, probably billions, quite frankly, of people that will be born during the millennial kingdom. That's who makes up Satan's army here. These descendants of the saints that enter the kingdom, some will only conform outwardly. It's exactly what you see in Revelation 13. The Bible says that God has established authorities and he's given law to restrain but the restraining of sin doesn't transform the heart. We can make all the laws that we want, and laws are good. They're just. One of the ways that we love our neighbor by enacting just laws, because it keeps their hearts from manifesting, but it doesn't change their hearts, does it? The law, did the law change Israel's heart? No, it didn't change Israel's heart. Their hearts had to be regenerated. And so the law in the kingdom will be will be adjudicated perfectly. Jesus will carry out that law. There will be no devil. But that law won't change the heart. And just like there are tares in the church today, there are going to be weeds in the kingdom. There are going to be lots of them. And they'll follow the devil in the end. And, and think about it. They're going to be ripe targets for temptation. They're inexperienced in dealing with the temptation of Satan. You're born and there's no devil, there's no tempter, and then all of a sudden he rele he's released and you're being tempted by him. You'd be pretty weak, wouldn't you? So you say, well, that's who he's going to deceive. Well, that doesn't answer why. Why is he going to be released? And why will they, will they be deceived? Why does God allow this? Well, some of this, as you know, is a, is a, is a mystery. I don't even think you're going to figure it out whenever you get into heaven. Some of it is, is, is subject to the, to the mind of, of God. And if you ever get in a situation where you start asking the question, why, and you can't figure it out, then, then, then the best place to go is God's God, He's bigger than I am, and, 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 and don't, get, don't get twisted up about it. But I think John Walvoord gives a good summary that I, that I can't improve on, and I want to show you four reasons he gives why Satan must be loosed. I think this answers very sufficiently the why question. Who he's going to deceive are those alive that enter in the kingdom. And why does God release him? And he gives four reasons. Number one, to demonstrate that man, even under the most favorable conditions, will fall into sin if left to his own choice. You ever think about that? This goes back to the beginning, doesn't it? Have you ever asked the question, why the, 
the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Why the garden? If God knows everything, why did He allow Satan to come along and, and tempt Adam and Eve? It wasn't because God was lonely. It wasn't because God wanted to try to figure out what, what people were going to do. He's God. Man, even in the Garden of Eden, even in an innocent state, before the fall, walking with God in the cool of the day, when tempted, he fell. And Satan's loosing here proves that only God's work can, can save man. Even after Christ's kingdom, earthly kingdom, mankind still needs Christ as the governor of their heart. Let me give you the second one. It's to demonstrate the, the foreknowledge of God who foretells the acts of men as well as his own act, what, what he'll do. Now think about this. Here we are reading something written 1900 years ago, Revelation, around 90 A.D., about something that's going to happen at an unknown date in the future. We don't know when the kingdom's going to come. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. You to be a witness. And we're talking about something here that's going to happen another thousand years after the the kingdom begins. And here God knows and declares the end from the beginning and is absolutely sovereign over every single thing. Everything the Lord declares will come to pass, including this. And so Walver argues this is to demonstrate that. Here's the third one. To demonstrate the incurable wickedness of Satan. Satan won't get any better being in timeout. Now, I'm not against timeout. I put my kids in timeout. They typically sat in timeout after they got their butts busted. That's what my mom used to call it. And the kid doesn't get any better in timeout. What happens is it may be a time to think. But it's the thinking that makes them better. And a lot of times when they're not thinking, the ROD helps them think, doesn't it? At least it did for me. Satan's not going to be any better in time out either. His only possible end will be the lake of fire. His followers don't get any better in hell either. Don't think that whenever unsaved people get to hell, that somehow in the torment they're going to go, oh, wow, I should have loved God, and now I love God, and they're going to want to get out. They're going to hate God there even more than they hate Him now under torment. And you want proof of that, go look at Luke 16 and look at Revelation. Even whenever judgment is falling upon them in Revelation, the tribulation is coming down, and they know it's from God Himself. They're not repenting. They're shaking their fist in God's face. They still hate God under judgment, they'll still hate God in hell. Satan still hates God in the abyss. And they will for all eternity. And so this is to demonstrate the incurable wickedness of, of Satan. And here's the last one. Me, I think number one and number four is probably the two strongest. To demonstrate the justice of eternal punishment. Why would God release Satan and allow this deception to take place? It's to show the unchanging character of wicked people, even under divine rule, for a long period of time, for a thousand years. Have you ever thought, wow, how lucky the disciples are, how blessed the disciples are to be able to walk through the paths of Galilee with Jesus himself? 
Have you ever thought, wonder what it would have been like to watch Jesus feed the, the 25,000, 4,000, 5,000 plus the, the women and, and children? Well, what's it going to be like with Jesus on an earthly throne? And he's going to be there, not for one lifetime. You're lucky to live to 80, 90, 100 years of age. These people are going to live for hundreds of years. Access to Jesus. Perfect opportunity. Perfect righteousness. Perfect opportunity to watch Him and observe Him and know and listen to Him. And His knowledge is going to fill all of the earth. There's not going to be any contrary uh, there are not going to be false teachers during that period of time. There's not going to be any evolution. There's not going to be any other nonsense. Everything that everybody's going to hear in all the school systems and in the governments, everything is going to be based on, on the Word of the Lord. The knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth. It's going to be a wonderful time. And even after that, people will still rebel. No fake news. No fake news going to demonstrate, God releases Satan to demonstrate the justice of eternal punishment. Think about what, what comes next. What does this scene proceed? Look at verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. What comes next is the judgment, the great white throne judgment. Now, God doesn't need to justify himself to anybody, to you, me, or anybody in the kingdom, but he's God and he's gracious. He releases Satan and people are given a choice to show why verses 11 and 15 are necessary and are just. This is who will make up Satan's innumerable army, and they're from all over the earth. Look, if you would, at verse at verse 8. He'll come out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for, for war. As I said, Satan's rebellion won't be localized. It'll be from the entire earth. The earth is filled due to God's blessing, and Satan's deception also spreads over the whole earth at his release. It includes the four corners, and it includes leaders and all of the followers. Now, notice it says Gog and Magog. You're probably very familiar with that term because you've heard it before. You've heard it from Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Now, I want you to notice that John doesn't give, doesn't give any description there. He just assumes that you know what Gog and Magog is because John knows exactly what it is because John knows his Old Testament. And in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it describes a battle that takes place with God's people. And while it's not the same battle, John borrows these terms. They would be very familiar to his readers. And Gog is the, the leader of the, of the army there. And so Gog here is the, the leader of the satanic army. And Magog is the army itself from Ezekiel 38 and 39. So, so John's point is, is he's going to gather an army from all over the earth, from every corner and from every walk of life, the leader and the people, Gog and Magog will be part of the, of the army. And this army will surround God's city, and it'll meet its doom. Here's the, 
engulfing of his army, the emancipation of Satan, and then the engulfing of his army. We see who's released, what he's released from, what he does, and what they do. They gather an army. But look at verse 9. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. They went up on the, on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp. Now, there's several references to the fruitfulness of the kingdom and the mass of humanity that will be there at the end of the kingdom. The four corners of the earth will be filled. Now, think about the destruction of the tribulation period. I mean, in the trumpets, a third of the, of the, of the earth's population is destroyed. Before you ever even get to the, ever even get to the bowls. The number of those, it says here, who follow Satan will be like the sand of the sea. Have you ever sat on the beach and grabbed a handful of sand? You thought about how many, how many grains are, are there? That doesn't count the people who are, who entered the kingdom and those who don't rebel. Now just as a side note, I think this is actually encouraging. Don't ever think, no matter how devastating the consequences of your sin, no matter how devastating it looks in a church, no matter how devastating it looks in a, in a country, in a family, whatever it is, no matter how devastating the consequences, God can restore what the locust devoured. Do you remember what the scene, what the earth looked like at the end of the tribulation period? I mean, it is absolutely obliterated. There are dead bodies strewn everywhere. After the tribulation and Armageddon wipes out the majority of the earth's population, and God has brought that back, that number back to an even greater number. And this gigantic rebellion surrounds God's city. Verse 9. Surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. That's a reference to Jerusalem. One of my favorite parts of teaching in, in Israel is when you come up from Jericho up to the Dead Sea and you start the ascent to Jerusalem. Boaz, the bus driver, usually puts in the CD, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the, the song, and, and we sing about the holy city, and you come through a tunnel, and then out of the tunnel, if you've ever traveled into Pittsburgh, it's, it's similar, yet I don't want to compare Pittsburgh to Jerusalem, because I've worked in Pittsburgh. Anyway, you come out of the tunnel, and all of a sudden, the city, the, the Temple Mount, is in, is in view. It's breathtaking, even, even today. It's the beloved city. It's beloved by God. You know why it's beloved by God? Because that's where his son died. Even before his son died, Mount Moriah is where God had Abraham take, take Isaac. It's where he says the Lord will provide. Do you remember when David numbered Israel and he chooses the, the, the judgment of God and God goes through and begins to wipe out, he begins to pour out judgment? And David is lamenting over his sin, how it's bringing consequences on, on God's people, the people that he's leading. And he looks and he sees an angel with a drawn sword 
over the hill in Jerusalem and God stays the angel's hand. You know why he does that? Because his hand is right over Mount Moriah, foretelling that God is also not going to withstay, uh, not going to withhold his hand when his judgment is poured out on his son, so he can withhold it whenever you come to him. The capital city during Christ's reign is the beloved city. It's Jerusalem. Jeremiah 3.17 At that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall be gathered to it. Everyone's going to look to, going to, look to Jerusalem. And to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem, no more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. And the saints of God will be living in and around that city during the kingdom. And if you were alive during the millennium and Jesus was ruling from the throne of, of Jerusalem, that's, that's where you'd want to live. That's where I'd want to live. Wouldn't you? I mean, if Jesus is in Jerusalem, I wouldn't want to live in West Virginia then, although I love the place. I want to live in Jerusalem. As close as I can get to Jerusalem. Both Jews and Muslims do the same thing today. Jerusalem is one of the most coveted pieces of real estate in the world. Jews and Muslims bury their dead as close to the Temple Mount as possible for two different reasons. Did you know this? Muslims bury their dead outside of the, the eastern wall of the temple in front of the eastern gate as mockery. They, they bury their dead there to keep the Jewish Messiah from being able to, to, to fulfill the prophecy to go through the eastern gate because, because he wouldn't be defiled and step over the dead graves as, as if that's going to stop him, right? There's a Jewish cemetery on the Mount of Olives in one single grave plot. In that Jewish cemetery is up to $150,000 for one grave plot. And they bury their dead with their feet toward the temple. So whenever the Messiah comes, they can just stand up and walk right in the temple. That's what they believe. Well, John sees a beautiful city, the beautiful city of God full of saints. And he sees Satan's army surrounding it. And yet this battle is different from the last one, isn't it? Verse 9. This battle. You remember the first battle? White horse and army coming with him. and The army is gathered in the valley of Jezreel. This army is gathered around Jerusalem. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them instantly. There's no competing army here raised by the Lord. There's no horse. There's no rider. Fire falls from heaven and consumes the whole lot all at once, and that's the end of the rebellion. It's like the destruction of Sodom. Fire falling from heaven associated with divine judgment in Scripture. An eternal fire will be the end of Satan and all of his, all of his followers, and, and he goes in first. Third, there's the eternal end of the, of the devil, his emancipation, and now his, his end. His army gets engulfed, and now he meets his doom, verse 10, and the devil who deceived them that was thrown was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone 
where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they, all of them, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And after the destruction of his army, Satan himself is now cast into the lake of fire. And John reminds us, this is where the, uh, his other two minions have been for the entire millennium, for the entire thousand years. They get thrown in before. Now the entire unholy trinity is in the eternal lake. And Satan began his rebellion before the garden with some particular words. Do you remember what Satan said whenever he made clear what he desired to do? Isaiah 14, 14, you remember what Satan claimed? I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And he's been attempting to do that from the beginning. And God tells him then, all the way back then in Isaiah 14, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. And here is the final fulfillment of that promise. And after a thousand years of terror, after deception, after evil work, after thousands of years of all of that, after millions of babies slaughtered, countless gallons of booze and drugs consumed, false religions, idols formed, billions of souls misled, Satan meets divine judgment. And I say, hallelujah! I can't wait until that happens. I hate him. And verse 10 says they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's no redemption for fallen angels. And there's no end to hell. It goes on forever and ever 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 and ever. And until you can't say ever anymore, it still goes on and on and on. You know what the good news is? Heaven's just the same way. The joy of the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So what do you take away? What should you take away from Satan being loosed in all of this? The kingdom. Why? And the deception. I think you should take away without grace, mankind has zero hope. You're not going to educate people out of their sin. You're not going to create a wonderful political environment and people all of a sudden are going to figure out that they need to follow God. Here you have the King of Kings, a perfect environment, and apart from divine, sovereign, regenerating grace, they will not come to Christ. You and I are so broken, so flawed, that even under a perfect environment with no devil... And Jesus himself physically leading us will still fall. And it didn't happen in the garden. And it didn't happen in the end. And that's the whole point of the cross. And the whole point of why God allows all of the fall to happen. Because he knew that if left to ourselves in the garden or in the kingdom, we would not do what we needed to do apart from his redeeming work. Revelation 20 shatters the notion that man 
can do anything apart from God. It proves exactly what Romans 3 declares. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks. They've all become unprofitable. But praise His name. He's still saving men tonight. And so preach the gospel without error. Preach all of it. And then watch God do His work. Because this day is coming. And I think it's coming soon. Don't you bow your heads. Let me pray.